It will be trivia, but not trivial. That might be a little trivial. If you have your Bible this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, the passage will be up on the screen in just a minute. Um, I'm reminded, I was reminded this week as I was preparing the sermon of a 10-year-old boy who was listening to the sermon as well as he could possibly listen at 10 years of age. And finally, he looked at his dad and he said, next week, if we put more money in that basket, will he talk less? (laughs) What are you thinking about when you come into church on Sunday morning? What's going through your mind as you approach worship? Uh, is, uh, is it a wondering, uh, uh, the songs we're going to sing, I hope the songs we sing this morning are songs that I really like, or perhaps you hope that Tom doesn't go too terribly long uh, and keep us here, you know, with too, too much. You, know, you may be wondering whether the Bulldog Cafeteria is, is going to be hot or it's going to be cold or if it's going to be just right. You may be thinking about the business deal you closed on Friday. You may be wondering about the one you want to close next week. Uh, perhaps you're thinking about just getting your children into Sunday school without, you know, doing them bodily harm because Sunday mornings are so much fun in getting ready to come to church. A lot of things go through our minds as we come to what we call worship. But is our focus at all on wanting to see Jesus? Now, asking that question, I'm not suggesting that it isn't. But I think we have to be honest and understand there are a lot of distractions in our lives that impact our lives of worship. We're going to spend the next four or five weeks talking about disciple or worship in the context of discipleship. Our overall series for this year and maybe even into next is the, is the topic of discipleship. So before we, we get too far down that road, as I was planning this series, I thought it's going to be important for us to talk about how worship impacts our lives as disciples. And so this morning, we're going to kind of lay the foundation for that. And I, and I simply ask the question and pose it because probably everybody has had an experience of you know, coming into church and just barely getting here uh, or being frustrated with what's going on in our life. Uh, we don't worship God in, a, in an empty box. We don't worship God in a void of our circumstances. And so are we here this morning because we're longing to see Jesus? Are we here this morning because it's what we do on Sunday or maybe somewhere in between? And how is worship connected to discipleship? Luke chapter 7, we're going to read a narrative passage this morning, which means we're going to hear about an event out of the life of Jesus. Uh, And it is uh, basically Jesus, and there's a crowd of people around him, but there are two other primary characters Uh, that Jesus confronts in this story. One is a Pharisee. One is a a well-to-do, rich, uh, public citizen who's well-known by people, has a wonderful reputation. And the other is a woman who is simply identified as a sinner. Hear the word of God, Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him, that being Jesus, asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman 
this is that is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50 denarii. Denarii is about equivalent of a, of a day's wage for a laborer. So one is a, is a pretty big debt and the other one's a relatively small debt. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone. Be glory. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. Uh, in a room that we, uh, we transform each week to a worship space. We come to, uh, to do an exercise we call worship. And Father, we come from, from so many different backgrounds and so many different circumstances and scenarios. It's impossible for us to, to know everything that's going on in one another's lives. Lord, you know each and every heart that's in this room. You know the struggles we have had this last week, you know where we have failed miserably. You know where we have had great joy. Lord, you know the moments where our lives have been profoundly touched by your word and, and other moments when we have ignored what you've had to say to us. So, Father, we don't want to come with any pretense this morning. It's of no use to our souls to kind of play church, so to speak. Lord, if you're not here, then there's no reason for us to be here. Church doesn't make you a better person. Going to, going to worship on Sunday morning has no intrinsic value in and of itself if you are not present and if your spirit and your word does not do its transforming work in our lives. So, Father, I just pray that this won't be a waste of time, that it won't be something we can check off our list and say we did but rather that your Holy Spirit and your word would touch every heart in this room this morning, from the youngest to the oldest, from the newest to the, to the one who's been here the longest, to those who are filled with joy and to those who are, are filled with sorrow, that you would speak your truth, that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This event in the life of Jesus is really about two very, very, very different people. Uh, and we're going to look at it in that context. We want to look at the, uh, the reaction that each of these people has to Jesus because Jesus is offering salvation to both. Jesus is coming, claiming to be the Messiah, and both of them stand in equal need of his grace and forgiveness, whether or not 
they realize it. And so to look at, at these two characters really is uh, an opportunity for us to look at our own hearts and to ask some questions about our own perceptions of Jesus and how we worship him or how we don't worship him. Uh, the first thing I want us to consider is the, just the two contrasting attitudes with which these two folks approach Jesus. Let's go back to verses 36 through 39 and just set the scene again and remember the activity that's happening. One of the Pharisees has asked Jesus to come and eat with him. So he goes to the Pharisee's house, takes his place at the table. Now here's where the, the action begins. And behold, and it's interesting that Luke says, uh, and behold, some of your translations might say, Luke says, and now look. In other words, Luke wants to call out something that is unexpected, something that we weren't looking for in the story. You would think uh, a, a story about a dinner party would talk about the guests around the table. But in fact, Luke says something pretty different uh, is happening here, and you need to pay attention. So behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, or he thought to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Two radically different reactions to Jesus, the Messiah. First, the woman. She has a well-known reputation. She is not someone who is unknown in her community. It's a person that if you saw her on the street or if you read something about her in the newspaper, you would, you would know her by reputation, and her reputation is a reputation of sin. She has a reputation of being someone who is, is not someone you want to be seen consorting with publicly. This is a person, if she moves in next door to you in your neighborhood, you go, well, that didn't help my property value a whole lot. This is a person who is known to be one who goes about life the wrong way. A lot of different uh, theologians have commented on this woman. Many of them have said it, it probably stands to reason that she was a prostitute, but I, but I don't think the text is that clear. It certainly could be that that is where she has found herself. But you also have to remember that in, in Jesus' day, uh, the nation of Israel was occupied by their enemy, the Romans. It could simply be that she, much like the tax collectors in her area, was a traitor to the Jewish nation. And maybe she was consorting more with the, the enemy than she was with her own people. But for whatever reason, she has an awful reputation. Not like a sketchy reputation. She has a bad reputation. If you saw this woman, in all honesty, you would avoid her. So not be a person that you would, you would go out of your way to cross the street and not spend time with her. And we find her now realizing that Jesus is in town, showing up at the Pharisee's house, which was not unusual for a person like this Pharisee to have a dinner party and to invite guests. It was not unusual for other people to hear that perhaps a famous teacher had come to town and to come to the door and they'd be let in, but they'd be asked to stand around the edge of the table and not to interact with the guests, but they were welcome to listen. And so it wasn't unusual to find this woman in the crowd, but her actions are a bit startling. She is worshiping Jesus with reckless abandon. She is completely uh, unaware of her surroundings. So there's a woman of the city who was a sinner, and she's sitting at the, or standing behind the table. 
And what does she do? She begins to weep. And then she begins to, to, to let her tears as they fall on Jesus' feet be used to, to clean his feet. And then she begins to kiss his feet and anoint them with this very expensive ointment. She is not listening or thinking about anyone else in the entire room. Her focus is completely on Jesus. Many theologians say, and I agree, she's probably heard him teach somewhere before. He's had an impact on her life that has led her to this moment. Perhaps he has, he has looked at her before and spoken to her. Scripture doesn't say, so we want to be careful not to assume those sort of things. But clearly she knew Jesus by more than reputation, and she had been touched by his presence, and she now comes to give thanks, to give worship to one who has had such an impact on her life. And she's worshiping with all of her emotions. She's worshiping physically, literally using her hands and her tears and her hair to, to worship at Jesus' feet. And she's worshiping at a great personal expense to herself. She, this alabaster joy of ointment, and notice, there, and, I'll, and we'll come back to this in a minute, there's a difference between ointment and olive oil. She's using a very expensive ointment to anoint Jesus. She's giving him all that she has in worship. Leon Morris puts it this way. Clearly, she was completely oblivious of public opinion in the grip of her deep emotions. I don't know that I experience Jesus that way as often as I would like. There are moments in my life where I do fall face first, and sometimes very physically, and bow before Jesus and, and weep at his glory and at his beauty and at the fact that he would love someone like me. And the, the woman in the story is, is not a hero. Jesus is the hero for, for having saved her, having touched her life in such a way, but she certainly is a model for us to consider this morning. It didn't matter who else was in the room. It didn't matter to her that everybody else in the room knew who she was and was grossly offended by the fact that she was there. She shouldn't be here with good folks. She shouldn't be here with us. She's one of those other folks. She ignored all of that. She just wanted to be at the feet of Jesus. And then we have the attitude of the Pharisee, whose name is Simon, not to be confused with Simon Peter, the, the apostle Simon, uh, not to be confused with Simon the zealot. Uh, but this is a man who is well-known. He has a reputation as well. And his reputation is one of being an upstanding citizen. He's a righteous guy. This is a guy who, who keeps all of the law. He never fails to, to do the right thing, at least in public. And as he encounters Jesus, he is having a radically different reaction to Jesus than this woman. His reaction is one of, of really uh, indifferent. He's not emotionally engaged. He has somewhat of a critical spirit. And you can tell by the thought that runs through his mind, which he doesn't speak. He doesn't, he doesn't verbalize it. But we've all had this experience. You've been at a, at a dinner party. You've been at an event. Or, and you look at someone across, across the room, and you have a thought about them. Oh, there's my good buddy George. i got to go talk to him. Or, oh, there's so-and-so. I'm not too sure about them. We all have these kind of thoughts go through our mind, right? Okay? And this thought that goes through his mind is, this woman's a sinner, and Jesus claims to be a prophet, but clearly he's not. Notice his focus is on Jesus. It's not on the woman. The woman is simply a means to an end for him. And he looks at this woman who, who is a woman of bad reputation and says, no prophet, no self-respecting prophet would be around her. Therefore, I don't need to engage with Jesus with any kind of seriousness. And he comes to Christ 
with a very critical spirit, as if to say, who is this Jesus anyway? His reputation, he certainly isn't living up to it by what I'm seeing right here in my own home. Two radically different attitudes. Let me stop and ask you, do you find yourself in one or the other of those camps this morning? Or maybe wandering between those two attitudes? What was your thought about Jesus when you came to church this morning? And I'm not, and I'm not doing that to, to, to pick on you. I'm asking myself the same question. When I got up this morning, when I thought about coming to church, was my first thought, I really hope I don't mess the sermon up? Or was my first thought, I really hope I get to go see Jesus? Two very different attitudes. Do I have an attitude of wanting to bow before him and just get as close to him as I can? Because I know his heart towards me. I know his compassion. I know his grace. Or am I simply saying, well, time to go to church because that's what I'm supposed to do on Sunday. Or maybe somewhere in between those two. Where do you find yourself this morning as you look at these two contrasting attitudes? Because although we have two folks that are approaching Jesus in a, in a radically different way, there is really just one simple truth in this text. Look at verses 40 through 43. So Jesus hears Simon's unspoken words, which I think is pretty cool. Simon thinks something, but he doesn't say it. But Jesus answering, so this is where being the Son of God comes into play. Jesus knows what's in Simon's heart. And he says to Simon, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he's answered him, say it, teacher. And Jesus tells a story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And then Jesus replies to him, you have judged rightly. There's one simple truth in this text. And the simple truth of the text is this. Great compassion begets great love. Great compassion begets great love. If anyone's ever treated you with compassion, if anyone's ever gone out of their way to offer a kindness to you that, that they, they weren't required to, they simply did it because of their own good spirit. They, they simply wanted to be a good neighbor to you or a, or a friend to you. If you've ever been on the receiving end of that experience, you have great love for that person. You have great respect for that person. Um, the way I got to seminary, and the way I got through seminary uh, is too long of a story to tell you this morning, but I'll tell you just the briefest part of it because it, it illustrates this point. When we moved back to St. Louis in 1990, uh, I had done about 18 hours worth of coursework at Covenant Seminary, and I came to St. Louis to work at Central Presbyterian Church at the youth director. And at the time, there was a man there named Andy Jumper who was the pastor. Now, Andy was the kind of guy that was a lightning rod. He, he, he drew a lot of emotion for people. You kind of you either loved him or hated him. There, nobody was really indifferent towards Andy Jumper. He had a very strong personality. He was a very, very strong leader and had really done some amazing things at Central. When I came to that job, Andy said to me, I've had three youth directors who have all gone to seminary while being youth directors, so get any notion out of your head of going to seminary while you're on staff at Central. I said, okay. Cindy and I prayed about it. We accepted the job. I said, well, at least we'll be in St. Louis. We'll be close to a seminary. We'll see what happens. Nine months after I arrived in St. Louis, in August, I was called by Dr. Jumper to come do liturgy. I didn't even know what liturgy meant 
at the time. I had to look it up in the dictionary. All the other pastors were out of town, and so I was the pastor. I wasn't even ordained, but I was the guy that was going to read the scripture. I was going to say, turn in your hymnal to hymn number such and such. I was going to offer the morning prayer, and then Dr. Jumper did the sermon. So liturgy is basically doing all the stuff so the other pastor doesn't have to. We finished that. We're back in his office, and he looks at me and says, what class are you taking this fall in seminary? I said, Dr. Jumper, you told me I couldn't, I couldn't go to seminary. You said that you had youth directors who you know, kind of wasted the church's money by not doing their job by going to seminary. Remember that lecture you gave me you know, back in November when I was applying for this job? He goes, oh, that's all wrong. We need guys like you in the EPC. Go out to Covenant tomorrow and sign up for classes, and we have a session meeting tonight, tomorrow night, the elders, the leadership of the church. Come to that meeting. Okay, that's it. See you later. So I go out. I go to the seminary the next day. I sign up for class. I come to the session meeting, which there's like 40 elders of this humongous church. And Dr. Jumper says, now, Tom's one of our guys. I'm sure all of you know him. And I'm looking on the table. I go, I know three guys here. <laughs> These guys don't know me. He goes, uh, Tom's one of our guys, and uh, he's going to seminary this fall. Tom, stand up and say something about yourself. So I stood up, and I talked for a couple minutes. And I literally got about two minutes into it. Dr. Jumper said, that's enough, Tom, sit down. He goes, now... Tom's going to seminary this fall. He's going to be, it's going to take about three or four years to get this done. He's going, and we're paying for it. All in favor, say aye. And it was unanimous. And he said, Tom, go home and be with your family. Thanks. See you later. And I got up my walk down. Don't ever say a bad thing about Andy Jumper to me. Right? It's a guy that, he had no reason to look out for me. He had no reason to care about me. In fact, he had every reason not to, you know, to ask me to put that dream of seminary on hold because he had not had the best experience with some other guys in that situation. How did he know he could trust me that I would go to school and still do my job? Where there is great compassion, there's great love. And you look at this woman, and you look at what she needed, and whatever her sins were, Whatever compassion needed to come her way, she got it in overflowing measure in her interaction with Jesus. She was not the same person after she met him. How much mercy do you think you need? How much mercy do I actually think I need? The answer to that question will dictate how much I love Jesus. If I think I need a lot of mercy, it's going to move me into a deep, abiding love in Christ and an, and an ongoing awe every day that Jesus would love me and would care for me. How much mercy I think I need has a direct correlation to how I treat my wife, how we raise our children, how I pastor, oh, we're actually almost done with that, how we, how we impact our grandchildren's lives how I pastor this church, what kind of neighbor I am, what kind of coach I am at the hockey rink. It impacts every aspect of my life. And if I don't think I need much mercy, you're going to pay the price. The people closest to me will suffer. But there's a more profound question that I want you to wrestle with this morning. And I've been wrestling with this this week as well. I want to turn the question just a little bit because I think actually at the end of the day, My understanding of how much mercy I need is important, but there's an even more important question, and it's this. How much mercy does God think you need? How much mercy does God think I need? The answer to that question is a lot. 
I mean, who gives their child to stand in somebody else's place? Really. Who gives that kind of sacrifice? Who, we're, we're, we're going to go into a season after we finish with worship and do a season of, of studying discipleship and generosity. And the thing that I'm learning is that it doesn't matter how generous I am the rest of my life. I'll never be a millionth as generous as God has been to me, as God has been with me. God understands how much mercy I need, whether I get it or not. And he offers that mercy in Christ. That's how much he's loved us in Jesus. And that is the simple truth of this passage. So here we have two people, one who is grasping the outer edges of the glory and the mercy and the grace of, of Jesus, and she literally becomes undone, worshiping at his feet. And we get the other who is clueless, who is completely uh, misunderstanding and misreading his own standing before God. And therefore, we have two radically divergent outcomes. Look at verses 44 through 50. Then Jesus turns to the woman, but he says to Simon. Again, I love the nuance in this passage. You know, he hears Simon's thought, and he answers the, 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 the statement that was never uttered. And now he looks at the woman, but he's talking to Simon. Like, Simon, do you see this woman? You see her right here? Let me tell you about her. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But for the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, which is olive oil, which is the, 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 just the run-of-the-mill, inexpensive, go to Chinooks, buy the Chinooks brand cheap olive oil. But she has anointed me with what? She's anointed me with ointment, with this radically expensive perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And to those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this even that forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus points out Simon's complete lack of rudimentary hospitality. Even to a person that was unwelcome or uninvited, if they were coming under your roof in Jesus' day, you would at least give them a small bowl to wash their feet. Simon didn't even do that for Jesus. Even if your enemy was entering into your house, you would still perform the appropriate, what was acceptable in Jesus' day, ritual of giving the person a kiss on the cheek. Simon never offered Jesus even the smallest welcome into his home. And even for someone that you didn't care a whole lot about, you'd give him a little bit of oil, even the, even the common oil. Simon's indifference, his lack of hospitality, his pompous spirit is on display for all to see especially Jesus. I also want you to notice his interaction with Jesus, not just the nonverbal, but the verbal. Back in verse 40, when Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. He answered, say it, teacher. And, and the words there are like, okay, what do you got? It, it, it's words of, okay, I, I guess I'll listen to you. I, I, I'll give you a second of my time, but, but you really don't deserve it. It's a very arrogant statement. Much along the lines of the answer that he gives when Jesus says, which one will love him more? Simon says, the one, I suppose, for whom he, he you know, forgave the greater debt. Really, Simon? The one you suppose? It's a little clearer than that, Simon. <laughs> There's no question what the answer is, but you suppose why? Because you want to keep Jesus in his place, which is somewhere beneath you and your dignity and your home. And Jesus calls him on it. He says, Simon, you want to look at your heart? 
Look at this woman. This one that you, you, would, you don't even want her under your roof right now. But look at what she has done for me. And what did she do? She worshiped Jesus because of a life-transforming encounter she had had with him. She was in the right place doing the right thing because the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus had touched her. Same truth, same situation, two radically different outcomes. And the same is true of us this morning. That's why we must ask the question, where do we see ourselves in this story? Because I can be right where Simon was. Those who believe that they have little need of mercy offer little to others. Friends, that would describe my life many times. Even to this day, there are moments where Cindy will look at me and she'll be like, why are you so arrogant? Why are you so prideful? I'm glad that it, that's becoming less and less. Before, when I was a younger man, I was like that 24-7. I was the most arrogant person you'd ever met in your life. And I'd let Jesus in because I, I knew intellectually Scripture was right, but I wanted to stay in control, and I wanted to make sure everybody else knew that I knew what they should be doing with their lives and how much they didn't love Jesus and how much I really did. And I was just a complete, absolute hypocrite. I hadn't embraced yet the true understanding of how much mercy I really needed. And maybe that's you this morning. We go to the application slide in the, in the, in the uh, screen. Thank you. Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We take our worship of Jesus with us into the world, which means if we love little, we have little to offer the world. So the application for us this morning, maybe if we found ourselves indifferent to Jesus and needing this reminder from Scripture, it may be that this morning our best application is repentance. Uh, maybe as I close the sermon and prayer, it might be a time for you just to pray and thank God for reminding you of your need for him. And ask God to remind you daily of your need for humility and that you need more time with Jesus and not less. But those who know they have been loved much take much of that into the world. And they can't help but talk to people about Jesus. They can't help to have the conversation turn in that direction because they continue day in and day out to be just completely dumbstruck by the fact that, that God would love them. I was talking to a friend of mine this week, and somehow we got on the conversation of Jesus, and the friend of mine is not a believer, and I didn't, I didn't bring it up, and I wasn't trying to, to massage the conversation in that direction, although I should have been. And, and as we began to talk about this, the, the understanding of the cross, he got that and, and what Jesus had come to do, and his response was, well, it, it's just for everybody. Everybody's going to heaven because of what Jesus did. And we started to talk about faith. And the question was, well, how do you know what faith looks like? I said, just watch the person's life because it looks like thankfulness. <laughs> it looks like compassion to others. It, it looks like the one that's touched them. They begin to resemble him. And we had a fascinating conversation about what it meant to actually follow Jesus. But those who have been loved much take that love into the world. So, the question is, which does the world need? Does the world need to be loved little, or does the world need to be loved a great deal in Christ? We will take our worship into the world. You see, worship, at the end of the day, really isn't about Sunday morning. Yes, we come here and we worship on Sundays. and Don't stop coming on Sunday mornings. Don't misunderstand the title of the sermon. But worship is about falling at the feet of Jesus with thankfulness, 
for the compassion that he's given to us every moment of every day of our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this narrative in Luke that shows us that we can encounter Jesus and we can be indifferent and we can be cold and we can be self-righteous. We can encounter Jesus and, and we can fall at his feet in worship. Father, I pray that the latter would be true of us as a, individuals as well as as a congregation. But Lord, I know that, that that is a struggle day in and day out for us. I know at times we, we forget how much mercy we actually need and then we live as if we don't need very much mercy. I do that, Father. Forgive me for that callousness. Forgive me for that terribly misplaced self-righteousness. Turn our hearts to Jesus this morning, Father. May it not just be about coming to church. May it be about coming to the feet of Jesus and worshiping him with a reckless abandon in order that his compassion would flow into us and then flow through us to a world that so desperately needs to meet him too. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.